We're in a series, this is part two, uh, in the book of James called Wisdom for Relationships. Wisdom for Relationships. You know, you watch some people and you thought, boy, dumb has no limit, does it? It's just, you know, we need wisdom for a lot of areas of life. Wisdom for good health. Wisdom for financial management. Wisdom for getting along, not only with a spouse in marriage, but with friendships, correct? On the job, relationships are always either good or bad. And boy, they can go really bad. Don't be easily offended. That's one good thing that'll help you. Because offenses are, I don't care what church you join, what group you join, what country you migrate to, somebody will offend you. It's inevitable. Learn not to be so so, um, easily offended. Defend yourself. Stand up for yourself. But... uh, Relationships also take some bold confrontation occasionally, at least honest. So James chapter one. Now we said in our introduction last week, life can get pretty messy and complicated, full of problems, small and big. And sometimes we're not quite sure how to solve them. We may not even know where to go for the answer. So I'll tell you one thing. There is no shortage of people on social media who'll give you advice tell you where to go for the wisdom to solve life's problem. So where do you go? Your mama, Oprah, Siri, Google? We're going to meet a guy named James today. He's got a famous brother named Jesus. He wrote a little book called James, right? He offers up some wisdom on everyday problems, like how to deal with your anger, managing your mouth, cleaning up relational messages. I, I, I guarantee you, it's a lot better advice than Siri. But this book is an invitation to live in another reality where everything is getting turned upside down in the culture of the day it's written, and it's really upside down in our culture today. So we're looking at this great inversion where people who were thought of as being weak, poor, insignificant, of low value are becoming strong and vibrant through spiritual life in the kingdom of God. So often we think human means are the secret to a good life. Everybody wants a secret, right? There's 39,000 books on Amazon.com on success. I forget how many thousands are the secrets. I mean, are there 39,000 secrets? Really? Really? Just between us. Are you kidding me? What nonsense. But boy, we, we love to think there's a secret to excuse our lousy behavior. But there aren't any real secrets, you know. And we think that particularly about money. And we view people in those terms. We think if you're rich, you got to be smart and successful. And you have to have the secret. And if you're poor, you probably don't matter much. That's our culture. So James is going to challenge that to the core. Now, before we get to the text in James, I got to give you a little background, a little context historically in the Roman Empire, and then you'll go, oh, I see why he wrote that. But if you don't know the culture, it won't make much sense. So I'm going to help us and help set this up, okay? And James is writing to help us do that. And he's, he's going to actually, it's going to make sense when you understand the culture that the Roman Empire was made of. There's a guy named Hellerman. Hellerman writes about the Roman Empire, what life was like under it. He said there was a huge divide in the ancient world. About 2% of the population in the Roman Empire was part of the elite, and they had the wealth, the power, the status, and the privilege. Rome was all about rank 
and prestige and power and status. Boy, that was the bond that held everything together. That's what counted in the Roman Empire. So in that empire, there'd be a few different levels of status. At the very top were senators. Rome had a senate. There were 600 senators. They had the wealth. They were at the top of the list. Underneath them were those called equestrians. They were called that because in the early days, they had enough money to send horses into battle. So they were the equestrians. And they were, I guess, 7,000 more uh, strong. And underneath them were the decurions. They held a lower office. But all of them were part of the top 2% of the population. Everybody else, the 98%, were not elite. They were called the vulgus. We get our word vulgar from it. They were the unwashed, don't count, don't matter masses. Now, some of them had freedom. They were called freed men, and many of them were slaves. So it was understood in that culture, life was structured around status. And where you were in status was what you were worth. One ancient writer had an interesting observation about it. He says, quote, the existence of inferiors is good for superiors, for it enables them to point out those they are superior over. You know, if I'm at the top of the ladder, I like having people beneath me because it makes me feel good about myself. However, you will never see a statement like that in the New Testament anywhere. And that's because the idea that came from Jesus to the whole world was that all people are of equal value and worth. Now, they're not equally talented, okay, no. They don't have equal gifts, but they're equal in value to God. Your life matters to God. Here's another observation about this arrangement. The social chasm, the gap between the poor and the rich, the elite, was like an ant and a camel. If you're an ant, you ain't never going to be a camel. So you might dream of being a rich man, a free man. You might dream of climbing the ladder, but zero chance that's going to happen. So a lot of society was constructed around the recognition and preservation of rank, of status. It's, it's kind of like if you fly much in our day, airlines have people with elite status, and they get perks like when they get on the plane, they get to walk across the red carpet. Have you, ever, have you ever noticed that? Any of you who fly? Now, if you're not elite, you don't get to walk across the red carpet to get to the plane. You got to walk across a mud-stained, heel-stained-up, nasty old ratty carpet. That's what you get to walk, because you're not elite. So in the ancient world, clothing was about status. You might have heard of a toga. Servants were sometimes specially trained to wrap their masters in togas. They weren't convenient at all, but they were prized because only citizens could wear them. If you were not a citizen, you couldn't wear a toga no matter how much money you had. To wear a toga if you weren't was against the law. Anybody want to guess what gender was not allowed to wear a toga? If you were a woman, no toga for you, baby. If you were a senator, not only could you wear a toga, get this, you could wear a toga with a purple stripe down the side. Oh, how cool was that? <laughs> purple. So in that day, it was illegal to wear the purple stripe if you were not a senator. 
If you were an equestrian, you were allowed to wear a gold ring. If you were not an uh, equestrian, why am I having trouble saying that simple word, equestrian? But it was forbidden by law. You, you couldn't do it. You could be punished if you wore a gold ring. You could be beaten if you wore a gold ring. Now, this will all come back in a minute when I quote from James. This was so prominent that to be an equestrian was sometimes simply called the honor of the gold ring. I can wear a gold ring. You cannot. If you were an equestrian and you wanted to climb the ladder and become a senator, you could wear a special toga. Now, I'm not making this one up. You can Google it. This was called the toga candida. We get our word candidate from that. You'd wear a, you could wear a, a toga of dazzling pure white to show the purity of your character. <laughs> it ain't going to have one in Washington, I'll guarantee you, okay? So clothing in that day was all about reinforcing status, and everybody knew. Another thing was seating at public events or private events. It was a matter of status. Now, in our day, if you'll shell out enough money, when you go to a game or a concert, you can grab some front, front seats, good seats. However, at church, you don't even have to do that. If you'll come early enough, some of you, you can sit on the front row for free. And you get these fabulous seats, and you're not even paying extra for them. Now, we don't let, we usually don't allow families with a lot of small children sit on the front, but it's not related to status. It's related to the fact God didn't make them to sit still when I'm preaching. They won't do it. That God didn't make them to do it, and you're just being awfully obnoxious if you do it, because then it's a distraction, but it's got nothing to do with who gets the front row seats. We do have a church. We have friends that were left a church uh, because they, they're, they're well-to-do, and they gave a large gift to this church, and then the pastor wanted them to sit with him so that people could identify the best givers were those who got to sit with them, and they left the church. That's, don't put up with that nonsense. That's absolute nonsense. It's, it's, contra- it's perfectly normal in the world. It is abnormal in the, in the kingdom of God. It is not to be done. I don't care. If you gave me a check today for $5 million cash, first, I'd be very grateful. Secondly, I'd probably hug you. And I would express my gratitude. But I ain't saving you a seat. You get here, find you a seat, and sit in it. We're not, we're not, God blessed you with money. You're supposed to share. You're doing what you're supposed to do and thank God for it. We're very appreciative, but you don't get special status for doing what God has called all of us to do, to be generous, whether we're rich or poor. So in the ancient world, you you literally would sit according to your rank or status. So when you went to a public event, you could just look around uh and you know exactly where you were in the pecking order of that world. That's the way it was. Now we still have tiny vestiges of this. You might've noticed if you go to a concert and you get tickets, you can buy them for a lot of money in the orchestra section. Now, why is it called that? The orchestra is not in that section. The orchestra is down in a pit. Orchestra is from an old Greek word related to the word for dancers. At a Greek play, there would be dancers on the edge of the platform. And if you were a senator, you could go sit on the edge of the platform because you were of high status. But in our day, sometimes there'll be celebrities on the very front row. In that day, it was all about rank, about status, and privilege. 
When you went to a banquet, you didn't just sit at a table anywhere you wanted to. It, it wasn't about finding a good conversational partner to sit by. But if I'm the host, then I'm, I'm the most important person there. Then I have the honor and to, to suggest you're going to be number one. You're going to sit in my right hand. And if you're number three, you get to sit over on my left hand. And we still use that, that honor name, a person of uh, privilege, sit at my right hand. Okay. One day, two disciples, James and John, they came to Jesus and said, look, Lord, when it's time to go to heaven, grant to us one to sit on your right hand, one to sit on the left hand in your glory. And all the disciples listening to this on the team understood these dudes weren't just saying, we'd like to talk to you at dinner. No, it wasn't about that. It was about rank and status and privilege. And what they were saying is when it comes time to be in heaven, Jesus, of course, you'll be number one, but we'd like to be number two and number three. Of course, this ticked off the rest of the disciples because now all they have left to fight for was number four through 12 because numbers one, two, and three, they're gone. Every time you sat someplace, it told everybody how much you were worth. By the way, let me pause and say this. Remember when Jesus says, that makes sense. When you're invited to a banquet, don't take the front seat. Go to the lower seat, lest somebody more honorable than you takes your place and the host asks you to go to the rear. That's embarrassing. So he says, go to the lower seat. So if I travel somewhere and they pick me up in the car, I always head for the rear seat. Now, sometimes they've made me move to the front seat. Uh, this past year, I went to a, uh, a conference uh, regarding something in the world hosted by a friend, pastor of mine. And I think there were a good 500 people at least there. I'm not part of that group, but I, I went over to support it. And I walked in, I saw, you know, hundreds of people and I went all the way to the back table. I didn't know anybody. I got a cup of coffee, which was provided in the back, not a bad place to sit. I got my coffee and I sat down at the last table in the back. And the wife of the host was passing by and saw me and she called my name and she said, hey, get up, come with me. She took me all the way to the front and I sat in the front and I'm thinking, everybody here is wondering what the heck is he doing up there? He not part of the crowd, we are. Look at that, wonder why he gets to go up there. Because I was smart enough to go to the last seat. That's why, Jack. <laughs> I wasn't about status. I wasn't there to be seen, but I got pulled up there. But that's the way to do it biblically. That's, that's Bible. See, the legal system was arranged around status. At least in theory, we would like to think there's justice for everybody. The law is no respecter of persons. At least it's not supposed to be. Doesn't always work that way. But regardless of ethnicity, socioeconomic status, and gender, it's supposed to, be, it's supposed to represent everybody. But we don't live up to that very well. But at least we have aspirations of it. In the ancient world, they did not. The law was designed not just for justice, but to reinforce status. So if you were of high status, you might be guilty of some crime. But because of your status, your punishment would be, well, maybe we'll exile you. Where if you were a low status and no worth, you could be beaten or executed. This is a very different world. There 
you know, that Jeffrey Epstein should have been in jail, but because of billionaire and privilege and connections and power and funding, sometimes justice doesn't serve the guilty and it doesn't serve the poor very well. Sometimes you can't afford to hire the best lawyers to defend you. It doesn't always work that way, but sometimes money does talk instead of what's right and legal, right? Well, heck yeah. Right. We've seen that many, many times, right? So this is so true. There was a particularly horrible form of punishment then called crucifixion. Crucifixion was invented by the Persians, but the Romans put it on steroids and perfected it as an instrument to keep the bonds of status in place. See, if you were a citizen of Rome, no matter what you did, you couldn't be crucified. Crucifixion was for slaves. And because crucifixion was intended to proclaim to the public not just you're guilty, but that you're worthless as a human being. Total humiliation. This was so true that crucifixion was known in the Roman Empire as the slave's punishment. This is the lowest of the low. That's as far down as you could go as a human. But one day into the great Roman Empire emerged this strange little community, the church. And the guy they revered among others and the one they followed and admired more than anybody else was a crucified guy. This is blowing their minds. See, this great inversion is happening. One day, the crucified guy's brother wrote this book, James. If you think this book is just some practical things to do, you miss the reality of the world that he is penetrating with what Jesus taught. And here's what James wrote. It should challenge all of us right to the core. This is James 1, verse 27. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress. Keep yourself from being polluted by the world. My brothers and sisters, you should not try to combine the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ with the practice of favoritism. Makes sense. Now that's strange, favoritism. Treating people according to their rank, which tells you about their worth. Now that was a way of life in this culture. Now James says this, don't do that in this new community. Now they do it in the world, we understand that. But in the church, you don't do that, he said. Why not? Because God has no favorites. I don't care what you drive, what zip code you live in, how much money you got, and whether you got five houses and two jets. You're no more valuable than me, right? Well, I think so. I ain't got a jet and four houses, but I'm as valuable as you are. You can put your little rear end in a leather seat, Cordovian leather, whatever it is. I don't know. It's still depreciating as soon as, as, soon as it rolls off the dealer's lot. But God doesn't have favorites. He's no respecter of people. God loves everybody equally. And that means every one of us equal worth, no matter what you own, what you have, or what you don't have. That's what we try to tell everybody. This is revolutionary as a thought. There'd be no reason for you to ever take your own life, ever. You are of great value. You do matter to God Almighty, and there is a purpose for your life. And at the moment, you may be in confusion, but you've got to be focused. Hey, God brought me into this world. God had a plan for me and a purpose, and I'm not going to judge that by the people around me. I'm going to believe what God said about my life. It matters. So this, this changed that world. Nobody thought about that. The founding document of America was we hold these truths to be self-evident that all human beings are created equal. However, we know from history, we didn't always treat everybody as equal. 
but that was the intent of the founding fathers. See, that wasn't self-evident to Caesar, though. This is so subversive, it has to get repeated over and over in the New Testament. So Paul writes to the city of Ephesus and the city of Colossae. He says, for there is no favoritism with God. That was hugely subversive because it was all about status and favorite and elite and privilege. When James says no favoritism, he has to actually make up a word that means favoritism because they didn't have a word for that in his day. Now that was the sin for which they had no name in the ancient world. So he coins a word not used in any ancient literature before James. He says, now people who are following Jesus must not turn their faces up to people. That's a vivid way of picturing what we do when we want to curry favor. Want to sit next to me? Want to be my friend? He says, hey, no more of that. Not in this new community that got founded by the crucified guy. He goes on, this is going to really push people's buttons. So here comes James. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring. Remember that with the equestrians and brightly shining garments and a poor guy comes in and tore up old blue jeans. If you show special attention to the man wearing the clothes, of course they will. They're trained to. And you say to him, here's a good seat for you. Well, that's what's, that's what seats are for. But you say to the poor man, oh, you stand over here or you sit on the floor by my feet. Well, of course they will. They've been trained to do it. James says, if you do that, haven't you revealed your prejudice, segregated the community of Christ and become judges with evil thoughts? And then James says, I'll tell you a story. Imagine two guys come into your church and one of them's wearing a gold ring. Literally, he says, a gold-fingered man. Anybody remember a movie called Goldfinger? The title character is this arrogant, wealthy, elite guy who wants to dominate the world. That comes right out of the book of James. That's before James Bond, right? That's why James says Goldfinger will have to be defeated by this new brand of love that Jesus has come to set up. Not only is he wearing a gold ring, but he's also wearing brightly shining garments. In other words, that could be referring to an equestrian who wants to become a senator, who wants to get up to the top of the heap. And for sure, it's a guy who has status. Well, of course, they say to him, hey, you come sit here. You come be the guest of honor. We'll let everybody know all about you. You went to this school. You held this office. You achieved this. You're an important guy. We'll talk about you. We'll lift our faces up to you. What a trophy it would be for Jesus if he could just get you on his team. Gag me. That's the thinking of the culture. Then somebody else comes in, not dressed real nice. He's got no credentials, never went to an up, upstate school, never did anything impressive, never on the team. And so we say, you go sit over there. We're not going to brag about you. Of course they'll do that. They've been trained to do it their whole lives. And James comes along and says, not okay. Brother Jesus said, not okay. This is the way the world works and the world gets into the church. And James goes on to say, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, verse five, James two, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom promised those who love him, but you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are dragging you into court? 
Well, of course it is. The world's set up that way. That's the way it's supposed to work. This is not James saying, I'll give you a few tips on how to live a good life. He's inviting us into a spiritual revolution. Dallas Willard, a theologian and author from Dallas, talks about it like this. He says, the great inversion, God now is turning everything upside down. This transcends human arrangements, culture, politics, everything. It's way bigger than any of that. The great inversion involves this thought. Among others now, in Christ, there are none in the human down position so low they cannot be lifted up by entering God's order right now. And there are none in the humanly up position so high they can disregard God's point of view on their lives. Now, it's not that if you're poor, God automatically loves you. And if you're rich, God automatically doesn't love you. Nonsense. God loves everybody. The thing about poverty is it tends to make people see their need including their need for God. And riches, generally, tend to make people blind to their need because they don't have any, including their need for God. So wealth, which humanly speaking, makes you think you're secure and strong in the spiritual world, that can be the most dangerous position to be in. Jesus' brother James writes in verse 9, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. What's that? God Almighty loves me. God's watching over me. My life counts. Verse 10, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. How often do we put that on a placard in the church? Since they will pass away like a wild flower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall. Its beauty is destroyed. He says, in the same way, the rich who mistreats you, oppress you, will fade away even while they go about their business. That's part of why James has rarely been the favorite book of rich people. <laughs> Throughout the centuries, and, and why it should be read by rich people always, starting with you and me. Because by any standard in this world, we're only 10% of the world population, and you and I are rich. If you're on minimum wage, you're making more than 90% of the people in the world who get by on less than $2 a day. You need to travel and go to third world countries to see how good we have it. Oh, I feel oppressed. Really? Let me send you to Afghanistan. I'll show you people living with oppression. We are spoiled rotten. We live in this world that will teach us to look at people based on how much money they have where they went to school, how strong they are, how successful they are, how beautiful, how hot they are. And to overlook and treat with scorn or derision human beings who are all priceless like treasures to God. There was a true story a couple of years online, just a, just a few ago, and there was a family that had a little bowl and they would let their cat sleep in it. They were doing a garage sale and they offered it online with their other stuff and they thought maybe it's worth a couple of bucks. And they listed it for that. Then people started bidding outrageous amounts of money for it. It turns out that little bowl was actually a vase from the Ming Dynasty in China. And they ended up selling it for over $100,000. They had been letting a dumb cat sleep in a vase from the Ming Dynasty. A cat, not even a dog, but a cat. <laughs> you won't see cats in heaven. All right, that's a, that's a true story. Now this one isn't, but I like it anyway. 
I just love it. It's kind of a parable for us with this message. A guy goes into an antique store. He sees a vase from the Ming Dynasty on the floor. He knows what it is, only it's got milk in it, and the cat's drinking out of it like it's just an ordinary cheap old saucer. He says to himself, I got to have that. I must possess it. But he gets really sneaky. He says, I've got a plan. I can't let the owner know that I know how much that thing is worth. Nobody would be clever enough to do what I'm about to do but me. So he says to the owner, I love that cat. I got to buy your cat. I'll pay any price for that cat. The owner says, hey, that cat's not for sale. He's a stray. He isn't worth anything. And the guy says, oh, I got to have him. He's special to me. I'll pay you $500 for that cat. The owner says, you want him that much? Okay, you can have him. And the guy says, like it's an afterthought. Oh, and I need something to feed him out of. So I'll, I'll give you another 50 bucks if you throw in the saucer. And the owner says, oh, I could never do that. That saucer is actually a vase from the Ming Dynasty. It's worth more than everything I got out here. He said, but it's the funniest thing. Ever since I started putting milk in it, I sold 17 cats. <laughs> That's our world. We just think this person is strategic, and we take prized possessions of God, priceless treasures, and treat them like they're junk. Just sit on the floor. You're not worth my noticing. You're not worth my doing anything. It's so interesting, James says, you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes. See, where my attention goes actually says a lot about me. It's not ultimately accidental that part of your nervous system that directs your attention is called the reticular activating system. Anytime you get focused on something, you start noticing it. You decide to buy a poodle, you'll see poodles everywhere. You decide you want a certain kind of car, you start seeing them everywhere. See, sin has gotten into our reticular activating systems, and we can't make that sin get out by human effort. So we just start looking for, well, there's a well-dressed guy. Oh, uh, there's a rich guy. Oh, that's a powerful person. Oh, that's a beautiful person. They might be strategic to me. I'll try to get to know them. See, one day, our God came down to earth, born in a manger, took off heavenly clothes, and just wore rags. And now we get to be part of this great inversion. And the great question we all face is, do I really believe this? Does my rectangular activating system really believe it? In James 2, verse 14, he says, what good is it, brothers and sisters, if you claim to have faith, but no deeds, no action? Can such faith save you? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes, daily food, and one of them, and you say to them, go in peace, be warm and well-fed, but you don't do anything about their need. What good is it? See, in the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. So what does it mean to really believe something? This is interesting. That's a big problem we have. And it's part of what James is getting at, that we often, what we often think we believe, we don't really believe it. It's our behavior that reveals what we actually believe. Uh, here's the thing. When it comes to belief, there are three different categories. A philosopher named Michael Novak talks about these three. There are those believers who came to believe something, but they don't really. I'm just trying to manipulate you. Now, we all know about that. Religious leaders do that. Hypocrites do that. Politicians do that, but they don't believe it. Then there are beliefs I think I believe, but it turns out I actually don't. 
you know, I think I'm safe, but when I get tested, I find I don't really believe that at all. This COVID has put a big test on what people believe and what they don't believe. Oh yeah, you'll find out in a test what you really believe. I don't believe God will take care of me. I've got to save all I can. I don't think I can afford to give anything. I don't think I can afford to do this because I don't think God will take care of me. Yet in church, you walk out saying, oh, I believe God's Jehovah Jireh. Oh, I believe God is a lifter of my head. But when tested, you actually don't believe it. Then there's a third level of belief, which is called your mental map. That's about how things really are. Almost through. You have a mental map about how you believe things really are. You never violate your mental map. Your behavior, your actions, simply reveal the truth about your mental map you carry around all the time about how things really are. You live at the mercy of your mental map. For example, I believe in gravity. Many of you do too. I believe that gravity actually operates. So I will never violate my belief in gravity. Therefore, I don't walk off the edge of a cliff. I don't jump off a tall building because I actually really, my rectangular belief, my mental map actually believes in gravity. My belief in gravity is what saves me. Not because I add works to it, not because I merit saving. It's because of my belief in gravity. It enables me to navigate reality safely. Where in the world, in the Gospels, did Jesus ever say, boys, let me give you the bare minimum requirements to get into heaven? (laughs) He never says that. Of course not. He never says that. What he says is, hey, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. What I tell you is true. Simple. Therefore, you can believe it. You can trust me. See, you can trust Jesus. Well, trust him for what, Rick? about everything, anything that he says. You can believe it because it's irrefutable and it's true. What is the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ? That's his mental map. It's what Jesus himself actually believed. He had a set of beliefs. See, you're not just to have faith in Jesus. You're to have the faith of Jesus. Saving faith, that will save me from worry, anxiety, greed, stupidity, sin, wrath, bad politicians, death, and hell. It'll save me from it. People say, why don't you get all stressed out, get mad, beat the pulpit on this group that doesn't and this group that does and over this issue? Because I've been to these rodeos a long time. Got lots of t-shirts. God's got my back. He's the lifter of my head. I don't sweat it. I got enough experience. If you don't have any experience, you're going to be all over this place if you keep watching the news. You're going to be goofy as a $3 bill. I could give you a couple of stories right now. And I said, how did we come to this? This is the most insane thing I've ever seen. You know, if you go in the airport, I do. You got to be lined up in the airport six feet apart. Okay. Yeah, but I get to sit down three inches from you. How are you doing? (laughs) Who's planning this policy and strategy? Does anybody, I don't care if you're left or right. I I don't give a rip. I'm trying to say, that's stupid. I'm sorry, whether you're Republican, Democrat, liberal, or conservative, that's stupid. Somebody is not thinking. You're lining up, you're lining up, headed for disaster, letting people control you without thinking. Don't do that. Get you some other contradictory information from people with proven experience and then make your decision. But just looking at what goes on, there are funeral homes that are putting masks on people who have been dead. 
before God. True. True. Like, are they going to cough on you? What? This is crazy. Just absolutely crazy. I'm sorry. I, 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 it's, so I actually believe that God is my healer. I actually believe he's my rear guard. I actually believe no weapon formed against me prosper. I can be attacked. I can suffer some setback, but he can't take me out. I have never thought the devil could take me out in any crisis. And he's tried, but it won't work because it's not, my time has not yet come. God is not yet finished. And I don't believe if God wants me out, you can save me. <laughs> Nothing I do can save me. He can take you out like that. But I actually believe I'm safe in his arms. I may have to fight. It may, be, it may take a while to get through it. I don't know how God may resolve that, but I've lived through this for so many years. Stay close to people who have been through a lot of drama and circumstances and come out on top and get your advice from them. Not for people all shaking, oh my God, they were going to die. And then uh, now all the guys on end times, oh, Jesus is coming this week and here we go again. I grew up on that in the 50s. And I just want to say, wake up, get a cup of coffee. Come on, get you a cappuccino, get your brain back. Stop, stop being stupid. There's always something going on in this, in this world. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, but there's not going to be any drama in my house. Not going to be any drama in my life. I've got peace. And when God's through with me, I'll go home. And when he's not through with me, you can't take me out. COVID can't take me out. Nothing can take me out. You can make me sick, of course. You say, well, I'll give you a fever. Okay, give me a fever. Remember God told Job, told the devil, Job, okay, you can touch him, but you can't kill him. Now, if you have that and you actually believe it, you're not going to drive a car, windows rolled up alone with gloves and a mask and a hat on. Dear God, are you mad? What are you thinking about? Nobody would, not a medical professional would ever tell you that's smart. Don't do that. But see, okay, I'm not making fun. I'm trying to show you what your mental map is. That's what you really believe. Not what you say, hallelujah, God is my healer. My day. You don't believe that. Yeah, okay. So when I come to believe what Jesus believed so that I see what Jesus saw, and as a matter of course, I do what Jesus did, and I say what Jesus said, and I look at somebody who has nothing that doesn't have education in the eyes of the world, and I think that's somebody whom God loves and Jesus died for. That's saving faith. And for God, I pray he'll forgive us for trivializing it into something so far from what James had in mind, what, what his brother Jesus had in mind. That's a mental map. Jesus' mental map says God is watching over me all the time. My time are in his hands. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I'm never at risk because nothing can separate me from the love of God. Not a cross, not COVID, not a human being, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male or female. I'm an object of my father's unspeakable love and I'm worth my sacrificing myself on a cross. That's how Jesus saw the world. And if I'm a disciple of him, the saving faith is when I come to believe what he believed and what he said. And my rectangular activating system comes to believe it. And the palms of my hands don't sweat. They believe it. And my armpits believe it. And my stomach believes it. And my wallet believes it. That's saving faith. That's good news, not just for you and me. It's good news for the poor, for orphans, widows, the trafficked, the hungry, the bullied. Because then followers of Jesus say, okay, God, you're watching over me all the time. My life is under your control. So here's some money I have. How can I give? Here's some time I have. How can I serve? You can sign up for Chosen in the back and help us. That's what you can do. Here's my heart. 
how can I love? Then the great inversion is happening through you. That's what we're called to be a part of. I know it's challenging, but it's real. And our world is waiting for believers in Jesus who actually believe that. Jesus believed to step off the cliff of fear and greed into the safety of God's care and love and generosity. We all get to do that. So nobody's any more special in here than anybody else. And we don't have special clothes to give us status in here. You look at some preachers, they got on four gowns, they got gold crucifixes, silver crucifixes, and they got gold, silver rings and all, because I'm the top of the deck. I'm, the, I'm showing my status. But when you read the New Testament, I don't see one apostle that had special clothes for, for services. They showed up dusty. The only thing they washed was their feet with the dust. And yet you look at where we've come today, status. Oh, these are for the high givers. They can sit here. These are for, the, now the world does that. I understand that. But he says, in my kingdom, you don't do that. Well, I don't have any church clothes. Hey, show up, but don't show up naked. You'll be fine. <laughs> there are no church clothes. It's casual. It's whatever you want to wear a suit, wear a suit. You want to wear blue jeans? I got on blue jeans. Wear blue jeans. I don't care what you wear. That's not a, a definition of Christianity. It's not about clothes. It's about your heart. It's about your heart. So anybody is welcome here. And anything can happen, and it possibly will. You are of great value to God. And it's not based on your money, your zip code, your clothes, your labels of your designer, the car you drive, or how many square feet your house has got. It's not about that. You're just as valuable as anybody else. You won't be in the world, but you are in the community of Christ, the church, and that's the way it should be. We don't gather around a, a, a political party. We don't gather around some elite group and a certain zip code of the city. I told you about my friend from Jamaica. She's a PhD, and she went to a church that's pretty much all white and pretty much all conservative, and the first thing they told her when she walked into the lobby, oh, sweet honey, you're probably in the wrong church. You're not our kind. I'll never, it rings in my head to this day, and she sat beside me. I couldn't believe it. So if you don't think it's going on, it's going on. And I want anybody, I don't care what your race is. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your political party is. I'm going to give you good news from scripture. If that doesn't transform you, nothing else is going to help. That's all I know to do. Amen. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.